Today's reading is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of God. Uh, let's join together in prayer as uh, we look at this together. Our great God and Father, we thank you that we can come before you, not in our own righteousness, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, knowing that, would you speak to us? Would we hear your voice and respond with faith, with hope, with love, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, a big fuss was made last year when uh, Time magazine uh, ran this story about the me, me, me generation. Uh, that is 20-somethings, or Generation Y, also known as Millennials. The me, me, me generation. Millennials are lazy, entitled narcissists who still live with their parents and why they'll save us all. And that caused a bit of a stink because actually plenty of 20-somethings said, hold on a minute, why are we that? You know, really? Are we that much worse than generations that have gone before? Well, apparently, according to the article, nearly 10% of 20-somethings suffer with narcissistic personality disorder. I had not heard of that either. But it is, do you want to know? Good. It is a pervasive pattern of need for admiration, interpersonal exploitativeness, and a lack of empathy. And 10% of people suffer with narcissistic personality disorder. That's way out of kilter with older generations. But the problem is you, you want to be slightly careful taking on the 20-somethings because, of course, they're tech savvy. So this was the response, or my favorite response uh, on the Internet, the meow, meow, meow generation. It's a cat's world out there, and we're just living in it. And why cats will save us all? A plague upon your silly article, I guess, is the uh, is the gist of it. Is it true? I don't know. I don't know if you are a twenty-something, you are deemed to be part of Generation Y. You're a millennial. Uh, I, as a forty-something, are part of Generation X. Uh, but we were just meant to be the same. I think. I remember reading Generation X, a sort of seminal novel by Douglas Copeland, came out in the early nineties. And the gist of it was, when well, he used this phrase, that Generation X has terminal wanderlust. Just can't commit. Doesn't want to commit. Is self-absorbed. And so unable to stay rooted in one community, constantly moving in the hope of finding a perfect community in the next location. An unwillingness to commit to people. 
So if that is true, dare I say, of your generation, apparently it was true of my generation, so it's been around a little while. Uh, is it getting worse? Oh, culturally, we're becoming increasingly narcissistic. I have no idea. Um, well, someone was telling me fairly recently, uh, they're a nursery school nurse, Christian comes here, and they're a nursery school nurse, and uh, the class next to them, she was a bit surprised when a, a group of three-year-olds was being taught to sing to the tune of Frere Jacques. I am special, I am special, look at me, look at me. And on it went, I can't remember the rest. Um, aren't I wonderful? I don't know what it was. Uh, on it went. Really? The obvious problem, if everyone is special, no one is special. Uh, but if you're teaching children that at such a young age, how do you grow up? Well, you think the, the, the whole world revolves around you. And some, I guess, so the sociologists would say, culturally we ask the question, what's in it for me? And everyone else is just a projection of my wish fulfillment. You only exist to keep me happy. That's not true. Um, Oh, it would help. No, 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 no. But you know, culturally, people think in those terms. As we come to a passage such as this, the question, hey, what's in it for me? That is going to fundamentally clash with discipleship of Jesus Christ. Because he would have us ask, not, hey, what's in it for me? But how can I serve you? I'm going to consider how I can spur you on and encourage you. That's a fundamental clash of cultures there. If you're just joining us, we're at a significant turning point in the book of Hebrews. Most of the autumn in the book we got as far as chapter 9. We picked up again last week. And when we come to chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, it's one of two bookends in the uh, the book or the letter or the sermon, probably as it was originally. Worth flicking back just a few pages. Chapter 4, verse 16. Excuse me, chapter 4, verse 14 to 16 is the other bookend of the big central section. So the central section of the book of Hebrews, really chapters uh, 5 all the way to uh, chapter 10, Jesus Christ is a great high priest over the house of God. And we can have confidence to enter into the presence of God because of his sacrifice for us. It takes a long time to explain that, but it's topped and tailed with these summary statements. So chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Very, very similar language and a summary to the one we just had read, chapter 10, 19 to 25. All the major themes are there. Come with confidence because of the work of Jesus Christ in securing you access to God as Father. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at the, there's a, really is a, a summary in verses 19 to 21 of all that's gone before, and then there are three injunctions or commands that flow out of it. Okay, so we're going to look at that. Uh, the injunction, excuse me, the command, the, the summary, uh, and then these three injunctions. 
Okay, let's look at it in those terms. Then first then, verses 19 to 21, here's the summary. Jesus' blood has opened access to God in heaven. Verses 19 to 21. Verse 19, verse 20, parallel. says the same thing, basically, just in two different ways. Therefore, brothers, since we have one confidence or access to enter, second thing, the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, third thing, or to put it in another way, we have a new and living way, second thing, open for us through the curtain, third way, through his body, his sacrifice. Saying the same thing twice, essentially. Or, or to summarize again, in the Old Testament, you're given this wonderful picture, the tabernacle. It's God's palace, as it were. And different people are allowed uh, to different proximity. But right at the center is the most holy place. It is representatively the throne room of God. One man is allowed in there, the high priest, on one day of the year, the day of atonement. And if he offered, that's only if he's offered a sacrifice of a bull for his own sins and a goat for the sins of the people. One man, one day, that's it. That was the past, says Jesus, but now... Now Jesus Christ has entered not into the tabernacle on earth, but the true throne room of God. Crucified, risen, ascended. He is at the right hand of God because of his sacrifice for sins. And if you trust in him, you belong there too. Physically, you'll be there in the future. But spiritually, you belong there now. And you have access to God as Father through the way that Jesus Christ is ripped open, if you trust in him. That's the summary. Come with confidence. Uh, a little while ago, my uh, wife and I, Kerry, went to the Royal Opera House. And there was someone in the cheap seats. Well, they weren't bad, actually. But a partial view. So uh, right at one end, one side of the stage. And you have to sort of keep leaning round on these slightly uncomfortable stools. If you've been, they're always a bit too small. Quite. Anyway, but so it wasn't ideal, but obviously the performance was magnificent. Uh, but immediately opposite and slightly below us, we could see the royal box, and the royal box was empty. That's all. No one there, no one famous there that night. Uh, the interval, we went and got a drink, and as we walked back, we walked back around the other side, and oh, well, I wonder if they keep it locked. Oh, they don't. Let's have a look. Hmm. Oh, it's all right, but nothing special. I guess they bring in the posh stuff when uh, the Queen et al. arrive. Should we sit here for the second half? No, we can't do that. You know, someone will turn us out. I'll get one then. Shut the door and we sat down. I thought, this is quite fun. And so we sat down for the second half in the royal box. Uh, uh, The problem was, you sit there and you think, any minute now, someone's going to come and say, get out. And they might say, get out of the royal box into your own seats. They might say, get out of the opera house altogether and be gone with ye. Um, because they'll speak like that. <laughs> um, so we lasted about four minutes before sort of shuffling and thinking, should we go back to our suits? Yeah, okay. And uh, we ran out. So uh, I would never be any good as a hustler or a con man. I just, I'm not a good confidence artist, which is probably good in a pastor, but there you go. Um, we're nervous. Now imagine, thought experiment. Imagine, uh, we come to the roll box, oh, it's unlocked, but we mustn't go in. But at that moment, a minor royal arrives, 
I don't know what counts as a minor or major, but anyway, Edward Wessex, is he minor? Probably not to his mum, I know, but anyway. Edward Wessex arrives and says, would you like to come in as my guests? Yes. And uh, because he's there, uh, the champagne and the caviar and uh, everything of great expense that the opera house can possibly lavish upon you is there. Uh, and the cushions, and etc. they're not beanbags there, uh, but they're slightly more comfortable than my awkward stool. And, he, and at the end, he says, would you like to go and meet the cast? Yes, that'd be quite fun. So you go meet all the stars and go backstage, and that's enjoyable. And he says, next week, do you want to come and um, meet Ma? She's coming next week. Do you want to come and sit with Ma? I mean, she does chat a bit during the interval, but you know, you'll have a good time. Mm, sit in the royal box with the Queen? Yeah, all right. That'll be okay. I'll give that a go just the once and see how it goes. That's very different. Someone has invited me in and I belong and I'm there with confidence. Not, as was truly the case, there illegitimately, feeling quite nervous, ran away. The two are very different. The writer here is saying, come with confidence. Because if you trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you, you belong. He takes you there to the throne room of God. Not physically, not yet, but spiritually you belong there. So come with confidence. And this work, it's secured forever, verse 21, by the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood has opened access to God in heaven. That's being the case, three injunctions. Let us draw near, let us hold on, let us consider one another. Let's work through them quickly. Uh, First then, verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Slightly odd language, but he's just picking up on Ezekiel 36. God says to Ezekiel, what will happen in the future is I will sprinkle water upon my people. They will be clean. I will give them a new heart. It's a fulfillment of that promise. Uh, That's what's going on. But question, practically, What does it mean to draw near to God? It's not a physical act. It's not if you're here, you've drawn closer to God. And if you live in Acton, you're a very long way away from God or whatever it is. Uh, It's not a physical place you draw in and out. You can draw near to God on your bed, at your desk, in your lecture room, Depends if you're listening to the lecture or not. But you can draw near to God anywhere. What does it mean? Well, fundamentally, it means quite simply, enjoy. You have God as a father, and you can come before him at any time. Enjoy the freedom that you have. Christians have freedom, permission, authorization, pleasure. You belong Like in the royal box, with the royalty, invited in, plush stuff, posh food, you belong. You're not there nervously. Will you accept me again, Lord? No need for that. Come with confidence. Not because of your merits, but because of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. That's everywhere, any time, any place. But I guess there is a sense of deliberately drawing near as well. In prayer, I read a um, 
Uh, no, I listened to uh, an interview with uh, an older minister uh, in his 60s, Sinclair Ferguson, saying, oh, listen to me, this is what I've learned from 40 years of being a minister. And uh, one of the things he commented on uh, was, uh, he said, I'm not quite sure, but the language of communion with God has dropped out of many churches. See, when I was growing up, we were all taught, you know, make sure you have regular, healthy, pleasurable communion with God. So no one really talks about that anymore. And by that, he just meant time. And he makes the obvious point. The people that we've spent time with in the past are often those that we'll most enjoy seeing again. And it is the same way in drawing near to God. Uh, the three guys I live with at university, we don't get together much, twice or three times a year. We're slightly scattered across the globe. Uh, but when we do to get together, it's very quickly we completely revert to type and uh, remember what it was. Well, no, remember, we just sort of whoop, sink back into being 21 years old and uh, how we related then. So very, very quickly um, uh, we get together, we'll have a drink and it's rem- you know, sort of a brief catch up. Where are you living? What's happening? How old are your children now? That sort of thing. Then very quickly after that sort of starter we just revert to uh, pathetic mockery of one another uh, main course is sort of reminiscing do you remember yes aren't we getting out yes uh, and then sort of putting we get on to how is life really with you and it's sort of we go through this pattern all the time and it's never said but we just do and we're boring old men in one sense before our time and yet as soon as the four of us get together there's a little bit of magic that happens there and it's just wonderful it's just easy I may not have spoken for six months, but bang, straight back into very good friendship because of the familiarity. Sinclair Ferguson was just making that point. Do take advantage that you can draw near to God. Enjoy him. And the enjoyment really comes through the time. You can't, there's no real shortcut to that. But let us draw near. You can do that any time. Any place. Draw near with full assurance of faith. Let us draw near. Second, let us hold on, verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. The God we trust in if we are Christian is faithful. He has never and can never break a promise. That is unlike anyone else we know. I see it acutely in my wider family. Uh, uh, one cousin, uh, father and uh, mum and dad are divorced. They have one son who's 10 years old who lives with mum. And uh, dad is not good at keeping promises. He'll say, oh yeah, I'll be there on your birthday and no shows. It's pretty bad for your kid. He'll say, oh, we're going on holiday in the summer. You know, let's go to Canada together. And it never comes to fruition. And so of course now dad says to son, oh, I promise you next weekend. And the son will say, yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, 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 I'll make other plans just in case. And sometimes as Christians, we can live that way. We're sort of slightly hedging our bets. Yeah, I trust God, but maybe I just need to swerve off over here and just get my pleasure elsewhere. Just hedge my bets a little bit because God may not be trustworthy really. He may not give me what I think I need. It's crazy. He cannot break a promise. He has never broken a promise. The one we trust is faithful. Hold on to him. Plan your life 
on the basis of his faithfulness. You can trust him. Hold on to him. Let us hold on. Verse 23. Let us draw near, let us hold on. And then last, let us consider one another. 24-25. Yes, slightly smoothed out in translation. Let me give it to you literally. It's let us consider one another to spur on towards love and good deeds. Think about one another. It's the same verb as you get earlier in the letter. Chapter 3, verse 1. You only get the only other time it comes up. Chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus. Here in chapter 10, consider one another. Think. Let your minds daydream about what other people need. If you've come to church or you're looking to church, asking the question, so what is in it for me? It's the wrong question. Obviously, you need to be a church where, where, where you're fed, where, where, where the word of God is central, where people are, there's a heart for the lost, where there's practical concern, of course, these things. But, but to come, the writer here would say, the right question is, how can I serve these people? Of course, there's a purpose. It's not just daydream about people. I quite like her, I quite enjoy daydreaming about her or whatever it may be. It's not just vacuously, but consider how to spur one another on. Spur. Like, spur. It's that sort of word. It's spur or provoke. It's sometimes used biblically for um, negative emotions, actually. So, uh, Deuteronomy 29, the people are spurred to anger. Acts 15, they are spurred to intense disagreement. So it's a bit of a, you know, they're stirred up to, that sort of sense. But I I guess a spur, I'm I'm no great rider of horses, uh, but those who are would tell me, when do you use a spur? If you were a cowboy, I know you don't have to be a cowboy to ride a horse, but if you were a cowboy, when do you put in your spurs? It's to give the horse a little bit of oomph, a little bit of encouragement. I don't doubt that when a a spur is put in, Horsey thinks to itself, all right, calm down, I'm going in the right direction. And the rider replies in this strange conversation they're having, "Uh, no, no, you were drifting off a little bit, I needed to yank you, and we were walking, and what was required was a gallop to get there more quickly. Hence, I apply a little bit of encouragement to you, and uh, off we go. It's that sense here. Consider, daydream, think, how can I spur people at church to love and good deeds? How can I spur others on? It's very striking. It's all one sentence, this 19 to 25 in the original. Here's the work of Jesus Christ. Here are the three most important things you need to know. Draw near, hold on, spur one another. Consider how you're going to spur other people on. And the rest of the letter really is just amplifying on these three commands. Faith, hope and love. You might put them. So the core of this is consider other people. What do they need in order to love and actively serve Jesus Christ better? 
So here's a girl, here's a girl, and she's here at church tonight, and it's the first time she's been here. What does she need? Think. What can I usefully do, say to her, that will encourage her to get involved in serving Jesus Christ? Well, here's a bloke, um, Faithful Tom, we'll call him. Faithful Tom has been a member of the congregation for years. He's been here since the church was planted, and he's the backbone, and he's such a great servant. You can always rely on Tom. Yeah, but what does he need to encourage him? Don't just rely on him, although he is reliable. What does he need by way of encouragement? Just because he's been here 10 years longer than you doesn't mean he doesn't need to be encouraged. Think, consider, what does he need? What does he need? And I guess this emphasis here is be proactive. So on your way into church, think of those you know best or those in your small group and just work through them. Okay, there's Eni, there's Meany, or whatever it is. There's Billy and Molly and whatever, you know. Billy and Molly, and what do they need? What do they need? What does Billy need by way of encouragement? Is it a thank you? You are such a great encourager to me. You are always here. You always say useful things. Thank you. Is it a question? Molly, how do you think you're best suited to serving people Molly, is there anything I can do to help you commit to people? Because you're a bit in and out. And uh, 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 What is going on, Molly? Is it thanks? Is it a question? I don't know. Consider. Now, controversially, his interaction. Turn to the person on your left. Look at them. I'm, this is interaction, this is not rhetorical. If there's no one on your left, you may have to turn inward or turn the other way to the person on your right. But most you turn to the person on your left. What do they need to be spurred? If you don't know them, you may want to say hello. But what do they need to be spurred on to love and good deeds? Do you know? Have you ever thought about it? Take 10 seconds, 15 seconds. Think. Just think. If you don't know them, you may want to say hello. That may be a useful thing. But otherwise, just think. What does the person upon my left or my right, if there's no one on my left, what do they need? Go. Brilliant. Now turn to the person on your right. I won't do it all again. But what about them? What about that person? There's no one there. It's an empty seat. I know it's an empty seat. Who's not here who would normally be here? And what do they need? Do you know why they're not here? Or maybe they're just sick or something. What do they need? But anyway, they're not here. Are they often not here? I don't know. What can I do to spur them to love and good deeds? That's the question the author would say has got to be in our heads. Not what's in it for me, but what can I do for you? Two final comments before we move on. One, uh, you've got to be somewhat realistic on this. This is an orientation of the heart that is seen in action. But I think the writer would call for consistent commitment to people, not frenetic exhaustion. 
So uh, for those who are tender-hearted, please don't sit here and think, right, well, there are whatever there are, 80 people, and now I've got to consider every person in this room, and uh, golly, it's going to be an exhausting evening just thinking, uh, and then I've actually got to do stuff. Now, you can't do it for whatever we are this evening, 80, 70, 80 people, whatever it is. You can't do But people you've known the longest at church, or people whose group you're in, I mean, this is going to be someone you're considering if you're going to be the sort of disciple that is called for here. So be, be realistic, would be my call, you know. It's an orientation of the heart. Make sure there's at least one person you're considering, which is not yourself, that wouldn't work. Um, but my other little comment would be, I, I don't know quite what to call you, but there are some heroes of consideration, it seems to me, uh, in our church, who consistently are looking out for thinking of other people. Hmm, what can I do to encourage them? What do they need? They're not here. I'll drop them a line to see what's going on. Wonderfully, other person-centered, servant-hearted. I mean, you have a board like McDonald's. This week's hero of consideration. That wouldn't work, would it? Because we never would know. Because it always goes on behind the scenes. But sometimes you hear. And one says, I just want to say, well done. Thank you. You make this church a lovely place. Let us consider one another. Uh, Briefly, there's a negative, then a positive, then we're done. Negative, uh, verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Don't give up on that. Why were people then giving up the um, the habit of meeting? Excuse me. Why were they giving up meeting together? Well, two obvious reasons were given in the letter. There's persecution. So just a little further down, verse 32. There's suffering. And some people will give up on the faith because it's hard. And they don't like being given a hard time. Uh, earlier in the letter, the other obvious reason, it seems to me, is just indifference. So in chapter 2, verse 1, people are drifting. There's not any reason we're given. They're just drifting. Have allowed themselves to wander a little bit in the faith. But for some people, people, some reason people are giving up meeting together. Don't do that, he says. Don't get into that sort of habit. Habit? The writer is not saying, if you miss church once, you'll be in all sorts of trouble. He's not saying that. Don't go on holiday ever. He's not saying that. It's a pattern, a habit of never meeting with God's people. You're in trouble. Because those who give up the habit of meeting together give up the habit of being Christians. It just happens that way. So don't give up the habit of meeting together, but positively, verse 26, encourage one another. Encourage one another. You know, very much there's the two senses to that in the letter. The whole letter or sermon is described as a word of encouragement, chapter 13, verse 22, or as it gets translated in the NIV, a word of exhortation. Because it has those two senses to it. You can be a parent and say to your child, go on, they're there, you're doing okay, keep going. You can gently encourage. Or you can be a parent standing on the touchline saying, get your foot in, son, get the ball off him. For goodness sake, get up the other end and score, which is more forceful. Uh, And at times in the Christian life, we need gentle encouragement. At times we need more forceful, not there, you muppet, over here, sort of redirection. It varies. And that's why you need to consider what does this person need? Is it a, a stroke or a jab? It's not always the same. 
everyone is different. Everyone goes through different seasons. Not always one formula. But consider how to encourage. And all the more so, as the day, the day of Christ's return, a day of judgment is approaching. Do keep spurring one another on. See, we don't fall short. And encourage one another with what? Well, obviously with the truth, as he's already said in this one sentence. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Don't give up in the habit of meeting, but encourage one another with the fact that Jesus Christ has opened up a new and living way for us. And we can come before the Lord with full assurance. Encourage one another with the truth that God is faithful. And you can always hope in him. Look, we're different temperaments. Some of us are quite good at spurring. We quite enjoy giving someone a little spur. Other of us are very good at encouraging with truths of how wonderful Jesus is. But we're complicated beings. At times we need a, a jab and at times we'll need the encouragement of who Christ is. In truth, most of us need both. Of course we do. But let us consider one another and encourage one another, even as we sing, but more particularly, as one by one we consider our friends, we consider new characters who are arriving at church. What do they need? How can I spur them on? Because a church where we're committed to spurring one another on, to encouraging one another, is a very lovely place to be. And all the more needed, because Jesus will return, so we've got to hold on to him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank and praise you that your longing for Christians trusting in the Lord Jesus is that we approach you with confidence. You don't desire a, 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 a nervousness when we come before you. A sense of unworthiness, of course, but unworthiness forgiven. Confident because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will we be those who come before you confidently and spur one another on to love you, to love one another to actively be seeking the good of one another. Would we be that sort of church, Father, to the praise of your name, for our good? We ask it through the merits of Jesus Christ. Amen.